Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, where safety is a top priority, from ongoing delivery partner education programs to contactless delivery. Safety never stops. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips, I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. I've always been intrigued by what goes on behind the scenes at a restaurant, how Beautifully presented, delectable dishes make their way to the table at just the right time and temperature. The inner workings of a restaurant kitchen are under constant pressure of not just meeting the expectations of discerning diners, but ensuring a satisfactory business bottom line as well. In an era of celebrity chefs and reality TV cooking shows, we're accustomed to seeing military-style kitchens that seemingly thrive on yelling, and intimidation. But as my guest today has proven, world-class food and staying at the top of the very competitive restaurant game can be achieved with a kinder style of leadership. Danielle Alvarez, welcome to Drive. Thanks for having me. Where did the passion for food come from? I think like a lot of people, it probably started with my mom and my grandmother in the kitchen cooking at home. For a long time, I didn't think of it as a profession or career. And I think it wasn't until I started going out into the world a little bit more. I studied art history in school and I worked at a gallery and then I worked at a not-for-profit that sold art for charity. And I just realized that none of that was giving me the joy that cooking did. And I didn't really know anything about cooking professionally. No one in my family had ever done it. So it was quite left field for me to want to go into that kind of a career. But honestly, one day to the next, I was like, right, I got to make a change. I enrolled myself in cooking school and then, you know, away I went. And you decided that a desk job just wasn't for you. Yeah. I mean, I just, I was at my desk and I was literally thinking about cooking and making something with my hands, you know, all day long. And, and I couldn't wait to get home to make something. I think like at the time I was like baking all these cookies and pastries and selling them like kind of on the side to my desk job. And I just, I was exhausted. It, you know, cooking is very physical work, but I loved it. And I thought, oh, you know, let me just try. Yeah. I've got to turn this hobby into a, yeah, into a and career. I, I think I was still young enough at that time that it was like a pretty simple decision. It wasn't like I'm much later in life and making that change now. Like I was still in my early 20s, so it was okay. What are your earliest food memories? Was there a particular meal or a flavour or a a food experience that just lit a fire inside you to to pursue cooking? I'd say, you know, watching my grandmother cook, you know, she was one of these 
women that could just make anything. And I remember being at her house one day, and I don't know if this is like the dish, but it was one of the moments that I remember that made me think, huh, like, okay, you really can make anything. Like we used to watch these cooking shows of professional chefs, you know, the old school ones with the chefs wearing the big tall hats in hotels and all that. And one day we watched one of them make like crepes. I think it was something so simple. And she was like, oh, well, you want to learn how to make that? Let's go into the kitchen and we'll make some. And she just whipped up a batter, no recipe, made beautiful crepes with like an orange, like marmalade sauce. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. Mm. And I loved it. I was hooked. It was probably almost magical as a little girl watching. Yeah, absolutely. I thought, my God, she just like made that out of nowhere. I had no idea, you know, like the simple chemistry of so many things. But, you know, when you're a kid, it was just, it was just brilliant. Tell me a bit more about your family story, because it's an interesting one. Your mother was a little girl in the late 50s when she and her family fled Cuba's communist regime for the United States. And they'd had a very full and prosperous life, hadn't they, in Cuba? So it was a yeah. huge, a huge thing to arrive in Miami with virtually nothing. Well, mom and dad actually had the same story. So they were... Um yeah, had had very fruitful lives in Cuba. My father's family lived in Havana. My mom's family was based sort of on the east side of the island. And they had virtually everything taken from them. And my mom came to the United States with her aunt. Um, her parents stayed behind because their father, my grandmother's father, refused to leave. So they stayed back to look after him. And um, so it was years before my mom saw her parents again. And I remember on my dad's side, my grandmother saying stories of how she sewed like money into the hem of her dress and that was all they could leave with and, you know, leaving all their family heirlooms and all their possessions behind and starting again in a new country where they didn't speak the language, they didn't know anyone. And Cubans are a very tight-knit community. So if a lot of people end up in Miami, eventually they created their own community of people. And I think that was quite comforting to have a whole other group of Cubans. You know, they weren't alone. But still, you can imagine, I think, going somewhere completely foreign and starting again and as a child and without your parents, that would have been incredibly difficult. Absolutely. And do you feel that those stories and that family history has has influenced you growing up? I had so much growing up and, and I'm so grateful for everything that my parents worked so hard to give to my siblings and I. But I think of those stories often and I, I sort of think there's like this um, feeling of like, well, they suffered and they got through it and look how that made them. And, and maybe that pushed me to sort of pursue something that wasn't exactly easy or was always going to be a challenge. And, and the thing people say when you're, they hear that you're going into cooking is like, oh, do you know how hard it is? Mm. And do you, have you really thought this through? And, and I'd say it was sort of that knowing that other people have had to overcome much harder things than <laughs> entering a different workforce. That I thought, well, let me just try it. It can't be that bad. But I'd say it does toughen you up to hear those stories and know that your parents suffered in that way. Well, it probably gave you that grit yeah. and, and perseverance, partly innate, but partly learned. Definitely. And my parents worked hard all their lives. You know, they were not the people that waited for any kind of handout. I mean, much the opposite. They were like, no one's going to give you anything. you got to work for it. So that was how I grew up. 
Let's get back to you. After culinary school, you landed your first job at one of the world's most famous restaurants, yeah. the, the French Laundry in Yonville, <laughs> California. I was reading you spent six months as an intern peeling eggs. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> that was one of the jobs. That's a lot of eggs, Danielle. It was a lot of eggs. I think we calculated how many eggs it was. It was far in the thousands. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about first restaurant job, like, crazy when I think about it now. I can't believe I threw myself into that kind of scenario. But I thought, well, I'm going to give it a shot. Let's go straight to the top. And they they did, um, you know, they took me on as an intern. And at that time, they had a pretty well plotted out internship program. So I finished school, went out there for a few months. And, you know, you can't be trusted as an intern to really do anything of any kind of consequence. <laughs> so the jobs that they gave us were, you know, like peeling the eggshells, because at the time, they were doing a very famous dish, and I'm sure they still do it, a classic that was like an egg custard inside of an eggshell oh. with like a black truffle veal jus sauce on top. And it, it was completely divine. I did get to try it at one point. <laughs> but they were meticulous about like the precise cracking of the eggshells, no jagged edges, no off-center cuts. So you had to go through hundreds of eggs just to get 12 perfect ones. So fill us in. Is there a secret to peeling an egg? I know when I well, often when I often peel an egg, I, I take <laughs> half the egg with me when I'm just trying to take the shell off. Well, so this is, you do, you use an egg topper and you would crack them from raw and then dump out the eggs and that would always go into a staff meal. We were always oh, eating I eggs see. for a staff so it was meal. the shell you It's just after. the shell. Got it's it. just the shell. And then you had to soak it in some boiling hot water with vinegar to be able to kind of push out the... The membrane that's in the egg, yeah, it's well, it's very actually interesting. Far, well, but it's far more intricate than I was imagining. Oh so yeah, it's not the a simple would have feeling been, of an egg. No, yeah. the pressure would have been intense. Yeah, how terrifying was well, it? Well, and and you know, it's one of those things where if you haven't done it, it does take you four times as long as it should for the first bit. Um, so that was like my first few weeks, just pretty much doing that for eight hours a day. Well, you obviously did well because you then went on to another highly acclaimed restaurant in San Francisco, Belette's Larder. Yeah. And working again under a formidable head chef, yes. what was the culture like there? Tell us about that experience. I think when I was leaving French Laundry, I knew that I wasn't so interested in the kind of cooking that was about this perfect precision. Um, although it was incredibly eye-opening and I'm so grateful that I got the chance to work there. I really wanted to connect to the produce a bit more, which, you know, French Laundry had a garden and I got to work in the garden. And so that started me off on that path. But the Bay Area and California at large is really renowned for its incredible produce. I mean, it's known as the fruit and vegetable basket of the United States. And I wanted to just cook, just learn how to cook. And Amaral Schwartner, who's the chef at Boulette's Larder, um, you know, you know about her. She's one of those women that's been around for a very long time. She's worked at some of the top restaurants, led the top restaurants in the city, and then opened up this place in the Ferry Building. So it's in an iconic building overlooking the Ferry Building Farmer's Market. Really small team, so I knew I was going to get my hands into everything, and, and she did. And maybe it's a consequence of having a small team, but literally from day one I was like, on the line, cooking the lunches and the breakfasts and all of that. and So you're throwing straight in. Straight into the fire. And she was demanding. So, you know, she didn't accept anything that wasn't right. And, and you know, it was hard. It was hard to be 
kind of pushed and driven that way. But at the same time, I'm I'm thankful because she gave me the opportunity when I probably didn't deserve it. And she treated me like she treated everyone else. I think she taught me not just about cooking and food, but what it's really like to own and run your own business. And, you know, they did it tough. Like she she did not compromise on her ingredients or her aesthetic, which was incredibly beautiful. Like you go into the shop and it was just like all these beautiful little spices and jars and things everywhere. And so I know that they invested so much of their own money into that place and they really worked hard to get something back. So I think, you know, watching them also made me understand what it's really like to own a restaurant. How wonderful. Alice Walters, Chez Panisse in Berkeley, Mm. California, was your next job. And it seems, again, that had a a strong influence on you. I'd say Chez Panisse probably had the strongest in terms of the kind of chef that I am now. You know, Alice is a visionary. She established Chez Panisse many, many years ago. I think they're coming up on their um, 50-something anniversary now. And... She, Although she's not in the kitchen, her presence is always there. I was led in the kitchen by two different head chefs, so each one would work six months out of the year and then have the other six months off, which was brilliant. So I got to see so many things. The menu changed every single day. I never cooked the same thing twice, I don't think. And it was really, um, it's a beautiful way to work. And I'd say there's nowhere else in the world like it. So at the beginning of the day, the chefs gather and we sit around a table, usually potting peas or something like that. And we talk about what's on the menu that day. Depending on what produce has arrived. Well, that's right. But the menu for the week is written by the head chef. So so he or she will have an idea for what they want on that day. But it is up to the chefs on each section to create it and to come up with it from A to Z. And then we would present it about 15 minutes before the service starts, and wow. we'd taste it as a as a group and, you know, make fine point adjustments. You wouldn't be able to overhaul something at that late stage, but, you know, a bit of seasoning, a bit of lemon, a bit of olive oil, that kind of thing. So really collaborative and dynamic. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. What and a then, wonderful model. And we would do two seatings, so an early and a late, and in between the seatings we would all sit down the chefs and eat the meal that we were serving for the guests and have a bottle of wine. And, yeah, it was just oh. remarkable, like the dream, really the dream. That just sounds to me to be the ultimate in terms of being able to really exhaust your creative mm. side, but also be be a great challenge. Here's the oh, produce, see what you can do with it. Very scary challenge, I would say, for the first. So I was there four years, four years and a bit. And I think it wasn't until the third year that I started to feel comfortable and confident going into work. And even then, there were challenges left, right and center. But I felt really nurtured in that environment. Like I was working with people that had worked there for 20 plus years. So wow, so they were unfazed. Of- yeah. I mean, they were extremely confident. So they were doing their own thing while at the same time looking out for me, which was just beautiful. Like you hear so many things about kitchens being these like cutthroat, brutal environments. And, and I feel really lucky in that I didn't experience much of that. And that must have set you up to feel an enormous sense of confidence and excitement about oh, yeah. what, what still lay ahead for you. Well, definitely. And and I think people probably wonder, well, why did you leave that? And And even then, four years of that, I still felt like I want to be able to take these skills and 
go out and see a bit more of the world, do my own kind of cooking. Like my cooking now is still very much like what we were doing then, but obviously heavily influenced. And then I can change it now to what we have here in Australia. Um, so it it taught me a lot, but I went through the whole process of being terrified, scared, and then ultimately confident and ready to take a next step. And that next step came when you were holidaying mm. here in Australia. I, I, I understand a friend introduced you to Mary Vale's Justin Hems. Tell me how that unfolded. I feel like there's certain moments in time where things just align so perfectly that you'd have to be really ignorant to just pretend like it wasn't something you had to do. A sliding um, doors moment. That's right. So I came here for a holiday. It was just as I was leaving Chez Panisse, a bit of a, you know, reward trip for myself for having finished um, a job before I went on to the next thing. And I really loved um, the culture, the people. I loved Sydney. I came in the summer, so obviously everything's quite magical here in the that's summer. That's a good sell in, yeah, in summer, right. doesn't it? <laughs> it sells itself really well. <laughs> and I remember leaving and just thinking, my God, I've got to get back to this place, but I have no current plans. I have I had some friends here, but not much of a connection. And so I wrote a, a message, an email. I remember I was at the terminal ready to go back home, and I sent him an email that said, you know, how much I loved it here. He had introduced me to different chefs and I'd been to all their restaurants and he's Australian. And I said, if you ever hear of any good job opportunities, let me know. And by the time I landed, he had sent me an email reply saying, actually, I might have the perfect thing. And it turns out what he forwarded me was a message from the food and beverage director for Maryville, a guy named Frank Roberts who works for the company, asking my friend David if he knew of anyone that cooked the food like Chez Panisse that might want to come to Australia and help them, you know, oversee and open this new project that they had in mind. And you and went so tick, just, tick, tick. Yeah, so it was just <laughs> all a bit too good to deny. Um, and then from there it was a few phone interviews they flew me out to cook for them and, you know, meet everyone, meet the whole team. And we all hit it off. And I think we had a, a shared vision and um, I signed up. Do you remember what you cooked? I do remember <laughs> what I cooked, actually. I went um, I went to the Carriage Works Farmer's Market and yeah. bought everything. It was autumnal, so that would have been a couple months after I had been here first. And I did um, like a poached tuna, a little bit rare with aioli and a tomato salad. And, and then um, I did a roasted lamb neck uh, with beautiful little baby vegetables that I'd found at the market. And just simple, like, you know, what I do now, a bit of country French Italian meats, you know, whatever is fresh and available. Oh, well, it worked. Yeah. It won, it won him Well, over. that's right. And, <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing about that is, is they had me here for a week before we did that final tasting. And we had, you know, we were having to get dinner together every night all together. And they were sending me out to different farms to see what was local. Because I said to them from the start that if I don't know that there's nice local ingredients around, I won't be able to do the project. So they understood that and they sent me out with a few different people to meet all the farmers and growers that potentially I could use. So by the time the tasting rolled around, I said, this better work out because otherwise we've just spent a week together <laughs> just hitting it off. And then, um, and what if it goes badly? But luckily it went well. Wow. 
Well, that, of course, then went on to become the award-winning Fred's in Paddington. What kind of restaurant did you and the team, of course, want to create in terms of feel and culture? Well, in terms of feel, I mean, anyone who's been to Fred's or seen pictures of it can understand that we really wanted to create a space where the guests were in the kitchen. And it is very much that. It's incredibly open. Guests sit at our kitchen benches. And the original idea was, let's have people feel like they're in our house. And, you know, the best dinner parties end with everyone in the kitchen. So let's try to create that kind of environment. And then from there, it was all about simple food, grilled over fire. So we big fireplace in the center of the room, which is really um, not just for atmosphere, like we really do most of the cooking there, wood-burning oven where we bake our breads and roast different meats and vegetables and um, nice ingredients. So sourcing from a lot of these small organic farms that we've worked with over the years. So we're really lucky in that I think what we set out to create is the product that we ended up with. The beautiful thing about it is that you not only get to enjoy a fabulous meal, but you almost feel like you're slightly entertained by seeing all that activity in the kitchen. And it does feel like being in someone's home. So congratulations, because you've absolutely achieved that. Thank you. Yeah, I think think it is the, the blessing of the naive mind to imagine how beautiful and wonderful something like that could be. In practical sense, there's a lot I would do differently now (laughs) having had that experience because I am expected and my chefs are expected to be not just cooking our best but on all the time. Yeah, it's a show. Yeah, it's a show. Mm. Uh, It's dinner and a show for sure, which is taxing. But I think through that I've just had to learn how to adapt myself and how I lead and how the image that I project when I'm in the kitchen which is an image of calmness. So I've had to really focus on, you know, what I look like in that space. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Danielle Alvarez. Your industry is still heavily male dominated. In the last Australian census, the chef job title was represented by just 25% females, 75% males, while the title of cook saw the reverse. Mm. 54% females, 46% males. Why do you think that is? What has kept women out of professional kitchens at that high level, do you think? You know, as controversial as it is, I do firmly believe that family life has a lot to do with it, if not everything. Because the hours are so unfamily-friendly. The hours are just not family-friendly. And, you know, I do think there has been a bit of a shift in recent years 
to allow women to have more senior roles and to have more flexibility. So maybe leading from a kitchen where, let's say your leadership style is more around the prep and and that makes more difference in the end result. So you could work more during the day and have one of the sous chefs run the service or something at night. So I have seen a bit more of that, which is very encouraging. I mean, I don't know too many chefs that are that don't want to support women and not want to have them in the kitchen. So I think it comes down to women making a decision that it just doesn't work for them anymore, which is sad, but it, it I think it's still an imperfect system. We're trying to work out ways to make it accessible, livable, and a great career for women all throughout their lives and not just when they're young and don't have children. I wonder also if it's a turnoff because it is so physically gruelling. Mm. Um, the hours, obviously, we've touched on, you know, it's very high pressure, mm. the stakes are high. Mm. And although you say you didn't necessarily experience it, there can still be that culture of bullying oh, with a military style yeah. yelling. Do you think that's still the norm? I'd say it's a lot less. I think there's still a degree of that for sure in many, many kitchens. And I don't know if that would change. I do think having women in leadership roles quells that a little bit. It's not certainly my natural style to lead that way, and I don't think it is for many women. We can still be 100% as effective, if not more, from leading from a way that's a bit more nurturing and encouraging as opposed to aggressive and shouting. You can't be if you can't see. Mm. And I'm wondering whether that notion played out in in the decision to have your kitchen at Fred's in full view of diners and for people to be able to see your style of leadership. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Because it's a refreshing change given given what we see often on television. I think it didn't play in as much as I would probably like to give myself the credit for back then. But now that I think about it, I feel like it was revolutionary, not revolutionary, but, you know, it was really new. I think it was. To see a woman leading a kitchen and to see the chefs getting along, to see there's no shouting. We're all doing our jobs really focused and really professional. And yeah, that was nice. And and I think there is something about, you know, you need to include women at the leadership table, like purely because we have such a different perspective. And now I can look back on that and see that openness as being really a big thing. And I don't know that many other men would have suggested something like that. Mm. Do you think it's decisions like that that we're going to need to see real change with women in leadership roles in the kitchen and also in a position where they can command equal pay because there is Mm. still an appalling gap on that front? Absolutely. I mean, I think inclusivity is number one. This particular moment in time that we're taping this, you know, we're having this raging debates about racism and it it's no different you need to have all the different voices at the table if you want to create good environments for people um so i would say like in my group for instance you know in maryville i'm the only um one of the only female head chefs and i would hopefully like to step into a group that's more like the executive chefs of the group. And I feel like it's almost my duty to represent the female voice in a lot of ways in those conversations, um, because otherwise we don't get considered. What advice do you have for women who want to pursue a career as a chef? I think, number one, you do have to really look at it with open eyes. And 
you know, as much as I was very like, oh, it'll be fine. I'm, I'm going to do it. I don't care. I don't want to hear the horror stories. You really should understand the physical side of it, the hours before you make the commitment. But once you do, I really, really believe it can be one of the most rewarding careers out there. You can travel the world. You can take these skills pretty much anywhere. You meet some of the most fantastic people I've met through cooking and through food. Like, I just think chefs and people that work in hospitality are a different breed. And, um, you know, such generosity and kindness. And I just love being a part of that community of people. So it can give you so much back if you're willing to put in the work. And that's probably like anything. No doubt that sense of community has come into its own, given what's happened with the whole COVID pandemic. Mm. It has hit your industry very, very hard. Restaurants particularly took a massive hit. How are, how are things now? And how has that impacted, do you think? Yeah, I, it's had huge impacts. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of businesses that won't recover from this, that if they were struggling before, probably have no chance at seeing it out of this. And, you know, I work for a major group, so I'm not an owner, but I've heard a lot of stories about people just shifting what they do and the lovely, loyal customers supporting that, um, which I just think is brilliant. Like, how nice that we're in a community here in Sydney and in Australia where we're not dominated so much by these large chain restaurants and so many of our community, local cafes, fine diners, all of that. We love our local cafe. That's right. Have been supported by the people that love them. And I think that has helped to see a lot of people through this time. I just love the way it's also brought so much innovation to the fore. You know, seeing cafes then selling produce that obviously they couldn't use to cook with. And and people going out of their way to buy it because they wanted desperately Mm. to to prevent their little local cafe going Mm. to the wall. That's right. And and that I think that is a very Australian sentiment. I love living here for so many reasons, and that's one of them, is that your immediate community is really supported by the people that live there. And and the local cafe is just one example of that. But, you know, I do think that they survive off the backs of, of the people that go to them every day for their coffee. Mm. There's a lovely sense of community and, mm. and loyalty. What are you most proud of from your time at Fred's so far? I mean, no doubt the awards must be very satisfying. You have reached incredible levels of success on that front. Mm. What I'm most proud of, it's, it's probably twofold. Like one of the things is probably quite selfish in that at the beginning of this whole endeavor, I think I had no idea what it was like, what it meant to actually be a leader. And I think four years in now, three or four years in with Fred's, I feel like I'm finally starting to grasp what that means and the responsibility that that entails. Does that weigh heavily? Um, It doesn't. It doesn't because part two of what I'm proud of is that the people that I work with now, they've come to us because they know of myself. They know of the kind of food we do. They're caring, deeply respectful people. So I'm quite proud of creating an environment where chefs can grow and can cook without fear. And, you know, I think we've made a commitment to a lot of the farms and growers that we worked with, have worked with throughout the years from the beginning. And we've been able to keep that promise in buying from them every single week as much as we could, supporting them. So I feel very proud that I think 
we've done what we set out to do mm. and and I haven't had to make too many compromises along the way, thankfully in support because of Maryvale. And um and I work with some really, really wonderful, beautiful people that are incredibly diverse from all different backgrounds that maybe knew nothing about this kind of cooking when they started working with us and now are making some of the most beautiful pastas I've ever seen. I hope you take time to occasionally stop and, and smell the roses, mm. so to speak, because you have built something and you've now kept it there at the top of its game. We were saying earlier that people are very loyal and support their local cafe. But I would also suggest that we can be very fickle. There are <laughs> new restaurants popping up True. very routinely yeah. and people are quick to say, oh, no, I'm on down to the That's next right. thing. So it's commendable just to stay at the top. It is. I mean, and and again, we're only a few years in, right? Like I commend the restaurants that have been around for 10, 20 years and all that because it's um, you have to be ever adaptable and open to change at every turn. If it's not your staff, it's your producers, it's the guests, like you have to be constantly on your toes. And that's an exhausting idea. But at the same time, it's really thrilling and it keeps you engaged. And, you know, you never get bored. Mm. That's for sure. You must no doubt miss your your family um, and friends back in the U.S., when you are able to get back, when these travel restrictions mm. lift, what will be the first meal you will share? What oh, will you be doing? Wow. Well, I haven't quite thought of it yet because <laughs> usually I start thinking those thoughts when the when the flight is booked. Um, but something made by my mom. I mean, she's just the most gorgeous, loving, beautiful woman. And her food really like you can feel that in her food and maybe it's because I'm her daughter, but, you know, everyone says what an amazing cook she is. And I... But you can taste food made with love. That's right. I mean, I think you can, like made with that care, with that confident hand who's, you know, she's made thousands of meals across her lifetime for her children, for friends, for family. And I just miss anything she would make. Doesn't matter what it is. She's She's amazing. Tell me she's come and dined at Fred's. Oh, she has. Yeah, actually, a few years ago in our first year, my my mom and dad, my sister and her husband and, and their kids came over and it was beautiful. They got to see Fred's and I think they were just, you know, couldn't believe it. They were so proud. They must have been extremely yeah. proud. Yeah, I think they were. Yeah. And you'd been through a lot because of your brother. That's right. Your yeah, so died. it was um, my brother passed away um, three months before we opened Fred's, which was, I mean, like, talk about life events that change you forever. Certainly that experience of watching him become ill, be diagnosed, and within two years um, pass was really... um, That changed everything for me. So, So in terms of, like, you know, when I hint back to leadership style, there's so much that I will now reference back to, like that moment. And I think it helps you focus on what's important. I think when you have been through such a life-altering, devastating, sad experience, you know, we're just cooking food in a restaurant. Like, we're here to make people happy. I carry that with me a lot. I carry that sentiment through a lot of the things that I do. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like it's, it's so unfair to have lost someone that you love. But at the same time, I feel lucky that I that I knew him, that I experienced that, and, you know, I can see the other side of it. Well, the gift of it is that it sharpens your perspective, doesn't Mm, it? Totally. And at such a, you know, I think at a pretty young age, if you can live your life 
understanding that you're not here forever and that you should walk with kindness, then, you know, that's a good lesson. That's beautifully put. Where is next on your destination list? For Um, travel? Yes, when we can travel. Well, just before everything got shut down in January, yeah, January, I went to... Japan for the first time. Oh, and what about the food in Japan? God, I just, I've been dreaming about it every night since we've been back. <laughs> I swear, like my partner and I just had the most phenomenal time just walking the streets, tucking into these little tiny, you know, five seat bars and then going for a bowl of ramen. Like it was just the most fun I've had on a trip in in forever. You know, I, I've been to Europe. I love Paris. I love Italy. But this was just something else, you know, it's just so different. So I I dream about going back and I was just there in January, right? So I don't know it'll be my first trip, but I can't wait to plan a trip back. It was so good. Like many cultures, I think it's um, you can get really swept away when you're visiting it for the first time. And then you go back and you see something else and you go back and you see something else and it all starts to change a little bit. But, you know, I love that feeling of going somewhere for the first time and being completely enchanted by it. And yeah, Japan, top of my list. Terrific. Tell me, when you are perhaps exhausted but starving, what do you whip up for yourself at home? Mm. What, What meal do you tend to go to? I mean, if it's like I'm starving and I need a meal, I try not to eat anything late at night just because as you get older, you just can't anymore. <laughs> um, but my go-to is spaghetti with garlic, chili and anchovies. Oh, and I kind of always have those items on hand. So it's, um, yeah, lots of Parmesan. Yeah, I was going to ask you which ingredients do you always have in, mm. in your kitchen? They would, mm. be, they would be those. Oh, definitely. I mean, I always have, I get a a weekly produce box and have for, you know, a really long time from one of my dear friends who has a business called Sift, where she sells the boxes out of Fred's on Saturday mornings. We haven't quite gotten back to that, but we will soon. And it's it's the produce that we cook in the restaurant. So it's all from small local farms. I get that from her. Sometimes just once every two weeks, it's so fresh, it all lasts. And, and I love having things like that on hand because it just means you always have something available, something fresh and beautiful. So what is your antidote to being in the kitchen? How do you unwind and relax? (laughs) I'm in the kitchen at home. It's so funny. (laughs) I, especially during the closure period of COVID-19, I spent so much time in my kitchen at home and it really felt great. Like I love being in the kitchen. I love cooking. It actually is what I enjoy doing. It's not just my job, but, you know, doing something at work and doing it at home is a completely different feel. So it is what I do. I do a bit of mostly reading of cookbooks, et cetera. Like I'm pretty one dimensional. (laughs) I I need to get other hobbies. I was going to ask you if you watch (laughs) cooking shows. I actually, I try not to watch too much TV just because I don't like the sound of it in the background. So um, for me, it's more about reading and just standing up in my kitchen and stirring a pot. (laughs) And you've got your own book coming out later this year, Always Add Lemon. Yes. What is the first recipe we need to cook out of that when we buy it, Danielle? Wow. First recipe. (laughs) I think you've got me there. Well, I did write, I get asked a lot about pastry because I love making like those kind of free form fruit galettes and savory as well. So I get asked a lot for recipes for things like that. And in the book, I have a recipe for an apple galette that I think is just simple and beautiful and 
if you're making a dessert, going to the trouble of making a dessert at home to me, it's like the perfect thing. It's it's the whole fruit. It's a bit of pastry and it's a skill to learn how to make a nice pastry. So I go into a bit of that. So I would say give that one a go. The apple galette. The apple galette. All right. Tell me, have you come across a particular podcast recently that, that you would recommend? Yeah, I would definitely recommend a podcast which is created by a dear friend named Judy Stewart. Her podcast is called Unpaused. And it's it's an incredible idea. She interviews um, different people, a lot of women, some men as well, that have had breaks in their career, either due to family life or, you know, a tragic event, what have you, where they had to step out of the workforce and how they got back into it. So it's essentially like the challenges of navigating a career throughout a lifetime. Um, and she has a gorgeous way about asking the questions and making it really um, conversational. And I, I really recommend it. Oh, I love the sound of that. Mm. A couple of other little tips from you. Is there a, a particular tool or instrument in your kitchen that you think we should all have? I think um, a good cast iron pan is something that I use really, really often. And I think in uh, the kind of quarantine period, I I used it a lot. A nice big wide one is really good for if you wanted to make pizza at home, if you start it on the stove, because, you know, so many domestic ovens just never get hot enough. So if you start it on the stove in a hot pan and then transfer it into the oven, you'll get a nice crispy base and crust. And a cast iron pan really holds heat uh, so much better than, you know, a other kinds of stainless steel or aluminum pans that can be a little bit thinner. There's a little bit of just care involved that's a bit different. You know, you never want to use soap in a cast iron pan. You just want to brush it with a metal scourer to get off any bits that may have stuck. But then aside from that, brush it with a bit of oil and and that's it. I don't know if that's like something that I got in the States, but I, I take one with me um, wherever I move for sure. That's a great tip. Yeah, they're um, great. I love my mandolin. I know mm. we were talking about how it's... Um, it's Dangerous a- <laughs> tools, but they're incredibly <laughs> useful. And there's like there's things that only a mandolin could do. Like, And I love doing salads just made of thinly shaved vegetables with a... If you did a salad with like some thinly shaped fennel or carrots and a warm like banyacada anchovy dressing over the top with lots of lemon is just like heaven. Wow. Yeah. I love fennel. Yeah, I love fennel too. So underrated. Oh, I know. And celery as well. I love celery. Yes. Makes such a good salad. When are you at your happiest? Ooh, I'm probably at my happiest around a table cooked by myself or a dear friend with close friends talking about life. Like I had a friend over recently and it reminded me that those are the beautiful moments in life. You know, I think our lives get so busy and you get so exhausted and especially doing what I do. I don't want to entertain people in my home on the weekends, you know, but because I've had a bit of a break, it was really nice to be able to have the energy to do that and to do it with a lot of thought and love. And I think people feel that when they come into your space. And those conversations around a table with friends, I think, really are the best moments in life. Certainly hard to beat. Mm. Daniel Alvarez, it's been a great pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jordan. 
Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. Drive is a Future Women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and is produced by Fancy Films. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode and we would love it if you could rate and review because that really helps people to find us. I'll be back again next week. Bye for now.